All right, well, let's take our Bibles. Turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 15 is we're dealing with secrets to successful living. And uh, we began a couple of weeks ago, and we got through uh, a portion of this particular opening lesson, and I want to finish it out tonight and complete it. And so we're going to begin in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, and we're going to read through verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6 tonight. And then we'll take just a moment, we'll kind of summarize very quickly and move right into the new material. But again, we are trying to uh, uh, identify some secrets to successful living. And this particular lesson is identified, or we speak, we're, we're speaking on this topic, how to find the true God. Because without finding the true God, there's no real success in life. And so we're going to go ahead and read, starting in Second Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without the law. Without, now... <clears throat> Remember, we're dealing with a divided kingdom here. Okay, we're dealing with a divided kingdom. 
And so it's important to realize that because when he's dealing with Judah, he's talking about those, uh, the, the, the two tribes. He's talking about the ten other tribes as he's dealing with Israel. So don't allow that to confuse you because if you, you don't keep that in mind, it is confusing. Because you're thinking, well, Israel, Judah, the same thing. He's double talking here. Uh, you know, on one hand, he's talking about somebody that doesn't or hasn't had the Lord, uh, the true God. And on the other hand, he's talking about these guys, as long as you're searching for him, you'll keep finding him, so to speak. So it's very confusing if you don't understand that reality and, <clears throat> and that truth. So moving on then, it goes on to say, now, for a long season... Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. But when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel, and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in, but great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. And nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. <clears throat> now again... Judah had just defeated a million-man army, an Ethiopian army. And they did it because of God's intercession. Now the Spirit of God comes upon Azariah the prophet here. And he goes to meet Asa and delivers a very powerful and a very practical message. He points out, that, <clears throat> he points out the very sad spiritual state uh, of Israel over the years. He specifically points out their godlessness. And, of course, the tragic ramifications of such a poor decision. Still, despite the rejection or their rejection of God, when in trouble, they called upon him. And when they called upon him, it says that they found him. <clears throat> now, it's an amazing thing to think of God's grace and his mercy. And when you think about that, truly, it is beyond the scope of our understanding. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, in verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, For my thoughts... Are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, many times we get the idea that that's talking just about things in general, that God doesn't see things our way. We don't see things God's way. <clears throat> the truth is that that passage, in its context, is dealing with God's mercy and grace. And it's saying that God shows mercy and grace like no other. That we can't possibly understand His grace. That even when people do not respond to God the way they ought to, even when we in our human, human, our human form would sit there and look at them with disdain and we would look down on them, that we would somewhat in a sense reject them for rejecting us, God doesn't see things the way we do. See, he doesn't think like we think. He doesn't feel like we feel. He doesn't deal with things the way we do. Our thoughts are not his thoughts, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways and our ways are totally different. And that's what the passage is referring to in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, as he's dealing with his people Israel. And here we find the same situation in the book of Second, the Second Chronicles, chapter 15, in this particular series, we are going to try to consider some of the secrets of successful living, though. Of course, no one can really live successfully without knowing God. And so we begin by addressing the issue, how to find the true God. And we started doing that early on a few weeks ago, and we <clears throat> mentioned a couple of things. We noted in the passage, and we're going to use this particular passage to understand that truth. Uh, the passage itself kind of describes one phase in Israel's history, but it also describes millions of people throughout the world today. 
And so how do we come to the place where, where we find God? How do we find God? Well, we're going to look at this passage and understand that. But first of all, we noted they were without the true God. <clears throat> right off the bat, we see in 2 Chronicles 15, 3, that they were without the true God. And in 2 Chronicles, it says, for Now for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God. It's not talking about Judah here. It's talking about Israel. Remember, Judah has just come off a tremendous victory over the Ethiopians. One million men fought against them, yet they had victory because God came to their aid. But now he's, he, the, the, the prophet is speaking now to, to Judah and saying, Israel, not for a long season, had been without, they'd been without the true God. And, we, and, and he's pointing this out. And he goes on to say, not only were they without the true God, but they were without a teaching priest. And so those were the two points we noted. And it was important that we understood this. The fact is, is that even though they did not have the true God, they did have a God. And, and we said it's important to note that we're not told that they were without a God because everybody worships a God of some kind. The problem was they were without the true God. And that's a problem in anyone's life if they're without the true God. And if, of course, they were without a teaching priest. And we said, well, who in the world are the teaching priests? Well, any faithful preacher or teacher of the word of God is a teaching priest. And, but, but, but again, they didn't have the true God. They, they had been a long time without him, and now they don't have a teaching priest. And then we come to the point where we're going to pick up in our passage. It goes on to say, they were without law. They were without law. So verse 3 is where we started our journey, and that's where we'll pick up, and then we'll continue through the passage and try to really come to the point where we get, where we understand how to find the true God. And uh, I think many of you have already found him. (laughs) But boy, we need to be very conscious and cognitive of the fact that so many haven't. And even if we found him in the sense of salvation, how tragic is it when we permit other things or gods to come between us and him, even as believers? So let's go ahead and take a few moments. We'll have a quick word of prayer and then we'll continue. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you would just bless our time together in the word of God. I pray that you'd take this simple truth from Chronicles and you would enable us to apply it to our own Christianity and our own lives. Thank you for the example of others that you've left us. May we learn from others. May we truly allow history to remind us of how prone we are to the same kind of sin and the same kind of behavior. Bless us now and may you encourage us from your word and enable us, Lord, to see how important it is to not only find the true God, but to continue to allow you to have preeminence in our life. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So these uh, Israelites, it says they were without the true God and they were without a teaching priest. But it goes on to say in verse 3, that they were without the law. They were without the law. Now, again, the priests were the guardians of the law, and so if you don't have a teaching priest, then you're probably going to lack the law itself because they're the ones that are to convey the law, to teach the law, to share the law. 
In those days, if anyone wanted to know the law, they had to go to the priest. Now, we're very fortunate today and very thankful, I trust, that we don't necessarily have to go to a priest or a preacher or some other rabbi or anyone else. We simply go to God's word. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a preacher. You need one. But the truth is, is that we can learn the word of God without even a preacher. If you're stuck on a desert island somewhere, friend, I'm going to tell you this. It wouldn't be the best situation at all. You'd certainly lack it in one sense in that you, you, you wouldn't have the community of, the, of a church to gather around you to encourage you. But my friend, let me tell you this. I think God's spirit would be enough. I think God's word would be enough. I believe that you'd find that you could still learn and grow in Christ if you got this blessed book, the word of God. Because, see, God intended that every believer be able to learn and to grow and to to glean from the Word of God, become everything that they're supposed to be. Well, God gave us the church, yes, and he's given us the gifts of the church, pastors and evangelists and teachers and so forth. I understand that. But, boy, let me tell you something. This one is indispensable. Of all, this book is indispensable. We have the law. We have the law. Sadly, as we mentioned in our earlier lesson... The majority of people do not read the Bible. They don't study the Bible. Therefore, they're without the law. And that, that, you think about that for a minute. <clears throat> because what if we don't study the Word? What if we don't read the Word? Then, in essence, we are without the law. Of all people in the world, believers ought to have the law. Of all people in the world, we the children of Christ, the the children of God, uh, believers in Christ, we ought to be the ones that can give the right answers, that have the truth, and that hold the truth. So what's the big deal then, when it's all said and done? Well, the law is really God's standard of what is right and what is wrong. We call those absolutes. Absolute truth is defined as inflexible reality, fixed, invariable, unalterable facts. For example, it's a fixed, invariable, unalterable fact that there are absolutely no square circles. And by the way, there are absolutely no round squares. That is an absolute. Now, in our world, absolutes have really taken a hit, so to speak. Absolute truth has been largely replaced by what is called relativism. The doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relationship to culture, society, or historical context. And in in essence, there are no absolutes. Now, while absolute truth is a logical necessity, it, it just has to exist, there are some religious systems, for instance, atheist ecumenism, that kind of religion, that basically argue against the existence of absolute truth. That say there is no absolute truth. Humanism, ex, uh, humanism's exclusion of God necessitates moral relativism, which means that basically humanists can't, they have to address what you call truth based on um, relativism because there are no absolutes. So as society changes, so does truth. As culture changes, so does truth. Humanist John Dewey, he lived in 1859 to 1952. He co-authored and was signer of the Humanistic Manifesto in 1933. He made this declaration. He said, there is no God and there is no soul. 
Hence, there are no needs for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, then immutable truth is also dead and buried. There's no room for fixed, natural law, or moral absolutes. Now that word immutable, it's important as you read definitions or as you read through the Bible that you understand particular terminology. Immutable is a word probably that some may not really have a grasp on. As a matter of fact, I looked it up to make sure I understood exactly what I was looking at. And what I found was that immutable is basically means unalterable, unalterable, not capable or susceptible to change. Not capable or susceptible to change. And so when we read the passage, it says, it says, with dogma and creed excluded, then immutable truth is also dead and buried. What he's saying is, with dogma and creed excluded, you remove all those things, then all of a sudden, immutable truth, truth that's not capable or susceptible to change, is also dead and buried. Absolutes don't exist then. And that's how he concludes when he says there is no room for fixed natural law or moral absolutes. Now, I don't know about you, but that's dangerous right there. <clears throat> that's absolutely dangerous, and it is anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-truth. Humanists believe one should do as one feels is right. That's a problem. See, believe what you want to believe, but absolute truth is still a logical necessity. You know that you can't logically argue against the existence of absolute truth? You can't do it. See, to argue against something is to establish a truth that exists. I mean, you have to have a truth to argue. You know what I mean? So, so to argue against something is to establish that a truth exists. So you can't argue against absolute truth unless, you, unless an absolute truth is the basis of your argument. Let me give you an example of that. Consider the argument made by many who seek to argue against the existence of absolute truths. They'll say things like, there are no absolutes. Well, by saying that, the, relative, the relativist, uh, relativist is declaring there are absolutely no absolutes. I mean, think about that for a minute. That's an absolute statement. There are no absolutes. Well, that's an absolute statement. So that's an absolute. The statement's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It's contradictory. If the statement were true, then there is, in fact, absolutes. Right? The real issue that most people have that oppose absolute truth that argue against absolute truth is that they don't agree with the one who's defining the absolutes. See, that's the real problem. And the one who's defining the absolutes is God himself. That's who the real problem is with. See, if people are are free to establish and apply their own personal absolutes, then that's fine. But to, to be governed by another to be ruled by another, well, that's just totally unacceptable. That's the real problem. Therefore, because God's standards have been rejected in the world's, man's and the devil's standards have been substituted, our culture has become increasingly corrupt. Because again, God's word has been dismissed. It's been discarded. See, they didn't have the law either. 
And what happened to Israel? They became more and more corrupt, increasingly wicked, because there was no law, no absolute truths. The great need today is to get back to the Bible then, which is the true standard, of course. It's the only book which contains the revelation of God. It's the only book that contains his love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. It's the only book that really reveals his son and his son's way of salvation to all mankind. I recently, just today as a matter of fact, came across, uh, my wife shared with me something that someone shared with her, but it's a, uh, an article that Franklin Graham had wrote. He recently wrote it. It was back on the 17th of January. And it goes like this. It begins by saying, who has the authority to define define truth? Who has the authority to define truth? That's a good question, isn't it? The voices of secularism in our nation, he says, including the media, Hollywood, and much of the educational establishment, certainly certainly claim that authority. And if you disagree with their views, especially on sexual orientation or gender identity, they look for ways to silence you. He goes on to say, I experienced that last month when Facebook, I experienced that last month when Facebook blocked me from posting for a 24-hour period because of something I said on the site in 2016. Now listen, he, 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 he said this just, I mean, this article was written in, in this last month, January. So 2016 was quite a, ways, quite a while ago. But he goes on to say that Bruce Springsteen, a longtime gay rights activist, had canceled a concert in North Carolina in protest over a state law to prevent men from being able to use women's restrooms and locker rooms. Remember that. I think I remember that. You may remember that battle as well. He said the law was going, here's what Bruce Springsteen said, the law was going backwards instead of forwards. Franklin Graham goes on to say, I responded that we need to go back. Back to God. Back to respecting and honoring his commands. Back to common sense. I expressed support for the law and added that, quote, bowing at the feet of godless secularism and political correctness is not progress. Facebook said that 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 went against their, quote, community standards on hate speech. And so they kicked him off Facebook. He goes on to say the Facebook ban made national news. And they reconsidered and apologized. I gladly accepted their apology, but the incident illustrates how common it has become in our culture to substitute godless standards for God's truth and then to silence those who disagree. The label, quote, hate speech, unquote, has become a popular weapon used to attack anyone who speaks out based on what God says about moral issues. So much for free speech, he says. Now listen, I I don't know about you, but that's an alarming reality. The truth is, is that many of us support Facebook and we support all kind of these medias, but when it all comes down to it, they are going to be coming after us. You are welcome to use our platform as long as you do not promote your God. Now, I don't know about you, but that bothers me. 
I'm not saying throw your Facebook away. I'm not saying get off the internet. That's not what I'm implying. But I'm telling you this, that there's nothing about Facebook and its owners and those that rule it and run it that's godly. And I'm telling you, the culture is trying to, de- de- is trying to determine what truth is. They're defining it based on the culture, based on society, based on the, the, the agendas of certain groups in our country, based on so-called progress and everything we're headed to. My friend, we are not evolving upward. We are evolving downward. This passage teaches us and shows us they were without the law. But interestingly enough, look at verses 4 through 6, though. And this is where we start to get to the real good stuff. But when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times there was no peace to them that went out, nor to him that came in, but great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. Now, when trouble came, they turned to the Lord. That's not so uncommon for us either, is it? I mean, when trouble comes, we usually turn to the Lord, amen? In Psalm chapter 119, verse 67, the Bible says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. Isn't it interesting to note that the psalmist even recognizes the fact that in too much ease and comfort, there is a temptation to go the wrong direction. To kind of drift, if you will. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, he says. I guess the implication is that once I was afflicted, eh, I was back on track. Why? Because the tendency is always to come back to God. The tendency is to allow trouble to draw us back to him. It's not that uncommon to turn to God in the midst of trouble. In the verse 6, we note that the Lord's the one who sent the trouble too. It's interesting there in the passage And nation was destroyed of nation and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. That's not something we like to address and we want to deal with too often. The thought that God would permit bad things in our lives to somehow get our attention and draw us back is not something that we like to think much about. But that's exactly what it's saying. And someone may say, well, God doesn't work that way today, does he? Of course he does. Sure he does. It's not nearly as uncommon as one might think, really. When God sees a man or a woman that has been living selfishly and independently of him to send trouble raining down on his life and possibly in his family, to somehow to bring attention to that man, to that woman, to help them realize that God has not left the throne, he's still alive and well, and that they have wandered far away from God, and it's time to come home. Luke 15, Brother Kavanaugh addressed the issue Sunday night, or Sunday morning, excuse me, but we deal with this so-called, we call him the prodigal son. But it's interesting in that particular passage If you take the time to look at it in verse 17, even though the prodigal has now left, he squandered his his inheritance, he finds himself 
eating in a hog pen. The Bible goes on to make this statement, a very profound statement, and when he came to himself. When he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? When he came to himself. Well, I'll tell you what, now, that's exactly what happened to Israel. There comes a point where God allows things in our life to where ultimately we come to ourselves. We wake up to the reality that we have turned our back on God, that we've gone our own direction, we've gone our own way. And God says, okay, fine, go do that. But I'm telling you, because I love you and I care enough about you that I truly want the best for you, I'm not going to permit you to live your whole life out in the world without getting a little dose of reality here. I want you back because what I want for you is the best thing for you. And so God permits things in our life, trusting that we'll come to ourselves. If you could take the time, not tonight, but at some point, write Psalm 106 down and look at Israel and just kind of note how they left and came back and left and came back. God allowed things to bring them back. So then what happened then? Well, they found the true God. At that point, they found the true God. Verse 4, we go back again and it says, but then, but when they in their trouble, excuse me, but when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. Aren't you glad that when we turn back to God, we're found of him? Aren't you glad that no matter what we do, and I get it, I know there are consequences for sin, I get that. It leaves scars, and sometimes those scars may never leave 100%. Oh, they're still deep dug into our, our being, our fiber, our, 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 our lives. And someone says, well, yeah, that shouldn't, no, they shouldn't rule you any longer. No, they shouldn't cause you to not serve the Lord or anything. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm telling you this. You can do certain things in your life that will linger Consequences of sin is a reality. Don't think you can go into the world and live in the world and then come back unscathed by the world. There is no doubt, and we've used the, you know, we, we talked about the other day, but I still remember a very vivid illustration of a young man who, who found himself, and I think I shared it just the other day even, who might have been a different variation of it, but the young man had, uh, had been using his, has been speaking ill, and in this case, he drove a nail in the wall. I think I shared that into a fence. He drove a nail into the fence every time he, he got angry, every time he got upset. Boom, boom, boom. Eventually, he started pulling those nails back out when he had a day that he didn't get angry. And his dad said, man, you're doing so well. Now go there. Every day you don't get angry, pull a nail out. He pulled all the nails out, but in the end, what happened? He looks at the wall and he realizes, look at all the pits, all the holes in that wall. That will never be perfect like it was because it's been tainted now because of all those nails that went into it. It's all, it's all different. It's jacked up. Let me tell you something. Don't you think for a minute, young people, that you can live your life how you choose and then one day say, you know what? I love the Lord Jesus Christ, but I want to go sow some wild oats. I think I'll just go out in the world and do what I want to do a while. And then when I'm ready, I'll come back to God, ask forgiveness, and everything will be like nothing happened. That doesn't happen that way. I'm not saying you won't be forgiven if you're serious with God and you repent of your sin. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that other people that are godly Christians won't embrace you, love you, and say, welcome home, brother. That's not what I'm saying. But let me tell you something. It, there, are, there are consequences. 
And Israel, boy, I'll tell you, Israel had gone away. But let's thank God that God doesn't give up on the, the, the child that goes off into sin. God doesn't give up on someone that falters and fails. God doesn't give up on us so many times like others may, but they found the true God. They found the true God. And there are three words that kind of identify this in, in, in the passage. First, there's the word turn, then there's sought, and then there's found. Those three words exist there. Those three words are found there. First of all, turn from sin and self. We want to find the true God. You have to turn from sin and self. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, the Bible says, For they themselves shew of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How you return to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, that's what we need to do. Boy, if you're lost today without Christ, you gotta, you gotta turn from your idols. You gotta turn from self. You gotta turn from sin. You gotta look to Christ and say, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, I understand somebody right now is going, oh, you're already talking about, repent, you're talking about works. Uh, I'm not talking about works, but let me tell you something. It would do us a little better to go into this thing called salvation with a little bit of sober-mindedness. This idea that you don't have to, to have any, all you have to do is just simply just say, you know what, I guess I'll just add Christ to my life. All to, to my, he can just join the rest of my idols. There's something wrong with that. You don't add him to a list of idols. You don't come to him on your terms. You come to him on his terms. I'm, saying, I'm not saying that you can give up your liquor, give up your smoking, give up your morality, give up this, give up that, and then you can come to Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. Because you can't give any of that up until you got him in your life. He's the power by which to do so. But my point being is, is this situation, we need to be careful. with Biblically, scripturally, we see here in this passage, you want to find the true God, you really want to experience Christ in his fullness, my friend, then you're going to have to be willing to turn from some things, and so will I. Especially as believers, that's the real reality. As believers, we know God. We've been already introduced to him. We've already met the Savior. We have him living inside of us. And to think that we can live in this world as we please and do as we choose without consequences and think that we're going to have the mighty presence of the only one and true God in our life, we are lying to ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves, according to 1 John. So we got to turn. It's not God's back that's facing us. It's our backs that's facing him. Not only that, but seek the Lord and his pardon. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. I know I'm moving quick and I'm not giving time to turn, but uh, we're going to close this out. My wife's in the nursery tonight. Seek ye the Lord while ye may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And do our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Boy, I'll tell you what, those Israelites found themselves in idol worship. And they, they at one point, finally, because of the affliction that God permitted in their lives, whether it's through an enemy, whether it's through pestilence or whatever it might have been, said, man, we need to turn back to our God. We need to stop following our idols. We need to stop giving credence to, their, to the beliefs of, of man. We need to focus on God and his word. And boy, I'll tell you what, the Bible says that the Lord heard him. They sought him. And we're going to see that they finally found him. God's not playing hide-and-seek tonight. He really isn't. He's not playing hide-and-seek. 
He's not doing his best to remain obscure or in the shadows. You just need to seek and you'll find him. I love them that love me, he says, and those that seek me early shall find me. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you, Matthew 7, 7. And finally, find the true God. Boy, once we turn from sin and self, once we seek the Lord and his pardon, we can find the true God. It's important that people understand that sin is a bad thing. I I don't think we're convinced of that like we used to be years and years ago. I I do. I, I, I believe today that somehow we've bought into the idea that somehow that God's just this old fella sitting up on a chair up in heaven and he's like old grandpa. He's just up there loving on everybody. Doesn't matter what you do. He's still going to love you. Everything's fine. Live as you choose. Ah, you ought to show some respect to him. But then again, if he's the man upstairs, what's the difference? I'll tell you, that's, that, that, that right there, that's blasphemous. That is blasphemous. And you know what? We take God so lightly today. And we take him for granted. And we'll go ahead and live our lives. We'll think what we want to think. We'll say what we want to say. We'll do what we want to do. Go where we want to go. Become what we want to become. Disregarding God to some degree. And listen, we need to turn from our sin and self. As believers, we need to do this. We need to seek the Lord and his pardon. And then we need, we're going to realize we'll find the true God then. We'll find him. Again, and he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, even you, Judah, you forsake him, he'll forsake you. Now I know someone's going to say, again, we're saved always. I get that. I don't know about you, but I've been in a place in my life where I turned my back on God and I went to praying and I knew it might as well be hitting that ceiling. My heart had gotten a little bit hard. I'd kind of got dependent on myself. And I knew I wasn't on praying ground like I ought to be. And God allowed some things to come into my life that said, Oh, you better get some things straight, Buster. You better get a few things straight. Listen, I don't know. Maybe you've never, ever been there. Maybe you've been right with God. Maybe you've never slipped on your devotions. Maybe you never found yourself in a a bad way. Maybe you never did anything that was sinful in your life since coming to Christ. Good for you. But you're not looking at that guy here. And I'm just saying, each of us, as believers especially, need to be willing to turn from our sin and self, seek the Lord and his pardon, and realize that we will find the true God. When we turn to him, when we seek him, he will be found. In verse 15 of Second Chronicles, a few verses down past our passage, it says, And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire, and he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. Let's be honest. Why do people struggle with peace in their life? It's a real simple answer. Because they lack the Prince of Peace. Oh, he may not be ruling on this earth right now. 
but he can rule in our hearts. And when we lack peace in our lives, it is simply because we lack the Prince of Peace. May God help us to seek him. You know, if there's someone that's lost, you're not going to get saved by going your own direction. He's been searching for you a long time. He sent his son to pay for your sin. You need to be willing to forsake your sin and turn to the Savior tonight. You need to be willing to turn away from yourself and say, you know what, I can't get to heaven myself. I'm just a sinner. I've got nothing to offer God that's worthy of any praise. All I have is a mind that's corrupt. All I have is a body that's sinful. All I have and everything I own would never be enough to purchase his favor or love. But he in his grace and mercy, I know he died for me. The Bible says so. I know he rose again for me. I know he loves me. And for that, I love him. I want him in my life. I need him in my life. You know what? You, you seek him, you'll find him. You'll find him. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You call on him and ask him to save you, forgive you, and come into your life. He'll do it. That's simple. And then, then you can start dealing with your sin specific. Then you can start dealing with all that mess that's going on. But don't come to Jesus to fix your problems. Come to Jesus because he's your Lord. He's your God. Because you owe him that much because he created you and everything you are, your being, your person, your body is really his anyway. He created you. You ought to come to him because you just, he, he deserves that. He deserves that. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you just help us tonight.